let's make sure we have the passage open in front of us as we look at it. Uh, just checking that I don't say anything uh, that's nothing to do with the passage, so that you can check um, that what I'm saying chimes very much with what the Bible's saying. As we begin, um, I wonder what your faith is like, those of you that are Christians, what your faith is like when times are hard, when it seems like God has left you and your, uh, your prayers remain unanswered. Does your faith waver? Do you blame God or give in to temptations or return to what your life was before you became a Christian? I feel like I've asked this question before because it happens over and over again in the Bible, doesn't it? These difficult times. The Bible, and God never promises, uh, promises us that uh, as a Christian we will have an easy life. The Bible says that the Christian life will be full of trials and suffering, but it also promises us perfect peace if we trust him something that we almost never do, and eternal life. Now, I don't know whether you've heard it, but it's quite common practice in some churches for it to be preached that if you are faithful, if you're a godly man or woman, if you are praying and trusting God, then God will bless you with wealth, health, and happiness. Uh, I don't know whether you've heard it. It's, It's called the prosperity gospel. Well, I wonder how they would preach this passage. Certainly it's clear that God is with Joseph. Look down at the passage. In verse 2 and verse 23, bookends the passage. And in in Hebrew literature, that's really quite important. Those bookends of the, uh, the passage, the Lord was with him. That's that repeated phrase. And even though God doesn't talk to him, it's certainly clear that God blesses everything that Joseph does. But where does Joseph end up by the end of this passage? Far away from home, far away from family, far away from any friends, forgotten in an Egyptian prison. You would probably understand if Joseph was quite angry at this point, wouldn't you? Um, God, what more do I need to do? You see the fragility of the prosperity gospel at this point. It doesn't incorporate eternity. God does promise us us riches and blessing, but only in eternity. Again, if you're not sure, I want you to think on the multitude of martyrs who have lived and died and what a mockery the prosperity gospel makes of their lives, their sacrifice, or their faith. But that's a minor point. I don't want to spend a lot of time dwelling on the prosperity, uh, prosperity gospel other than giving a quick, clear warning. So in Genesis so far, we have seen the fall of man through uh, Eve and then Adam's temptation and the sundering of this pure and perfect relationship with God, when man walked with God. Now, through Abraham and his descendants, we are seeing glimmers of a restored relationship. God makes promises. These are eternal promises to Noah, and then to Abraham, 
and eventually to Moses and David, promises that he will restore this relationship. And as we weave our way through this narrative, we should be wondering, along with the the Israelites, is this the one? Is this the one who is going to restore the relationship between God and man? And even though we see that with each of these characters, uh, they are imperfectly placed to fulfill these promises, we see glimmers of the characteristics of the one who is to come, the promised one, the one who uh, will fulfill those promises. In Noah, we see a man of faith. We see God's chosen one saving the remnants of mankind. In Abraham, we see God's chosen man, a man of faith. We see God testing him and God proving his faith and God repeating his promises to bless his people and the world through him, uh, or rather through one of uh, his descendants, Jesus blessing the world. And we see that blessing to the ends of the earth worked through, uh, as we worked through our, our way through the, uh, the book of Acts, as we did last year. So what do we see in this passage? Well, again, we see the future saviour of Israel. If you don't know the story, go and read it. Uh, this uh, Israel, ex- uh, the Jews uh, experience famine and so have to move to Egypt, uh, where Joseph has uh, prepared food enough for the famine, seven years of famine, and so the Jewish people and the Israel, uh, Israel is saved. So the future saviour of God's people, he's being tested. It's a pattern that is repeated time and time again. That, uh, this man of God is tested. Through that testing, God's chosen one is to, used to save God's chosen people. You see, we have no choice as Christians who believe that all scripture is God-breathed, but to see that Joseph is a foreshadowing of Jesus. So my first point is this. Uh, The man of God is tested, and through testing, God prepares his chosen one to save his chosen people. Uh, Before we look at this passage, I want to remind you of that story that Craig just told us about, and and this is something definitely I can relate to as the youngest son, um, and... Uh, it's often the spoiled one, and I have to look back and admit that. Um, and, you know, for me, everything came a little bit easy. Uh, academic success, I was good at maths and good at everything else, uh, and went to a top university. And so you can, I can understand just the foolish arrogance of this young boy. He would just tell his brothers, oh, in my dream you all worshipped me. So, yeah, I didn't go on with my brother. You can, you can see, you probably see why. Um, with that picture of that young man in mind, I want to challenge you, any young people here today in saying that you are never too young to serve God. We're told at the start of chapter 37 that Joseph is 17 years old. Well, um, also with Abraham who was over a hundred when he was tested, you're never too old to serve God. God humbles us through these trials, through this testing. 
as the cockiest young man around. I was, again, top of my school in maths. Um, I had everything at my feet. God humbles us. God will teach us and give us trials. Um, and pride is a real killer. Pride is the thing that is most painful I've realized in my life. But that's another story for another time. And that's something I've talked about before. Um, We also see that he was rejected by his family, don't we? And in Stephen's speech, uh, if you were here for uh, when we looked at Acts 7, each of God's chosen prophets was rejected by the Israelites. But as they were rejected and persecuted... God saves them and uses them for his purposes. So we see that with Noah being rejected by the people. We see that by Abraham leaving his people. We see that here with Joseph. We see see that with Noah, uh, sorry, with, with Moses. And again, eventually we see it with Jesus. Rejected by his people. God saving them and using them for his purposes. So what's God doing in these verses? Well, whilst we'll focus on Joseph's temptations later, that's going to be the second half, we also see that God is actually training Joseph. He's training him to be a great administrator. Not a very glamorous job. Um, You see, Potiphar is one of the most powerful men in probably the most powerful nation in the world at this time. Joseph is put in charge of his whole household, and in verse 8, let's have a look down, Joseph says, Behold, because of my master, uh, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. That's no small feat for a foreign slave. Something that Potiphar's wife is very, very quick to point out and emphasize when she accuses Joseph later on. He is a foreign slave. We don't know this person. We don't know his culture. We don't know his black background. He is a slave. How can you trust him? And even when Joseph is sent, uh, thrown in, in jail, he is put in charge of all the prisoners. And he is so successful here that the prison keepers do not need to pay him any attention. Can you imagine the type of character that uh, characters that they were in prison? Um, people sympathise with me um, when I tell them I work in a secondary school, um, that I work with teenagers, and especially as a uh, house, uh, you know, um, uh, a person in charge of a boarding house full of teenagers, and um, my house, uh, the, the boys in my house, or rather my house. Um, boarding house has the nickname the zoo so so we have some colorful characters we have some very surly characters we have some very negative characters we have some very boisterous and energetic characters 34 of them and so people wonder you know kind of like sympathize you know it must be a really hard job but can you imagine the type of characters that were put in an Egyptian prison in the ancient world Joseph had to look after these guys and get them to do what he asked them to do. He had to order them and possibly discipline them. And so Joseph was being trained up to take control of the whole of Egypt. 
to be an administrator, to be basically the prime minister of the whole of Egypt. And this is what God is doing here. So when you think, if, if Joseph had any excuse, he did. He had all the excuses in the world to say, God, why are you doing this to me? And if you're thinking that in your life, you might look at this story and think, how is God training me? So, uh, and he didn't dwell on his sufferings, did he? He didn't rail against God. He trusted and honoured God, and God used him. Let me read from uh, Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. And uh, you don't have to turn to it, but let me read to it. Uh, Read it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses... That means everything, everybody you come into contact with, everyone who knows that you're a Christian, and as a representative of God, every person you complain to and bemoan about your life. So, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a crowd of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Teachers love to moan. I, I have to say, I, I will go and to my colleagues and say, oh, this student is so annoying. I won't tell you who. It's not Nicole. Or, or Queen. Not often. Okay. So, but... Uh, yeah, I, I've got to think twice about that in the future. It certainly challenges me. When we bemoan our lives, when we complain about our lives, when we wonder where God is in our lives, let us look to Jesus and realize uh, the truth of the suffering that he went through, the suffering that Joseph went through. And you can just imagine Joseph is one of these really annoying, positive and charismatic people who are so good at their job that you can't help but like them. We have to be more like him. He is our example. And more importantly, we should be looking to Jesus as our joy and our example. So when I say that, the, my point, the first point, the man of God is tested and through that testing, God prepares his chosen one, to save his chosen people. I should also say that the man or woman of God should be looking to Jesus to overcome those testing times so that God can prepare us to serve him. Last year, some of you know that I lost my passport, and, or rather it was stolen in the post. It was an extremely testing time and I had sleepless nights and, you know, uh, quite a difficult, arduous journey, uh, both to KL and also to, to the UK. And I prayed and I wondered what God was doing and what God was teaching me. Well, a couple of months later, um, a colleague of mine also lost his passport. Uh, he lost it twice. Um, and I had to drive him up to KL and even though it wasn't quite the same situation, I was able to you know, point him out to, to where the, the High Commission was uh, and give him a little bit of advice what to do. Um, I'm, I'm thinking that God will also take me to Putrajaya and give me through the, get, help, help me help somebody through the, I think it was 
six different desks that I had to visit in Puchajaya to, to get my um, special exit pass. But I think certainly if a student loses their passport now, I'm in a much better position at least to sympathise but also to advise. And I know looking back that this was God testing me but also teaching me. So who knows where, you know, what those testing times are going to do for you. My second point is this. Flee temptation. All sorts of temptation, uh, but especially sexual temptation. I'm just going to have a look at how Joseph uses very conscious, practical steps to avoid temptation. See, we don't see much of sexual temptation entering into Jesus' story, but we are told that he faced and overcame every temptation. The New Testament is, it dwells quite a lot on sexual temptation, and for very good reason. It is one of the major things uh, that the devil tests us on, doesn't it? Isn't it? it? He tells us that because we fail, we are worthless. And every time we fail, we are take, he tries to pull us further and further away from our path of righteousness. If only, if only in our minds. Um, look down at the passage, verse uh, 6, uh, at the beginning of the second paragraph. We're told that Joseph is well-built and handsome. He's obviously intelligent and successful as well. See, everything a young man needs to, for it to go to his head. See, I was only good at maths, so I was arrogant because of that, um, and, and I was Chinese, um, and I went to a posh school. So uh, those things, that you, you may think, hmm, that's not very much reason to. But those, you know, those are the great arrogances, aren't they? You, you go to a posh school, you think you're best, better than everything else, it's a terrible thing. You go to a you know elite posh academic school and you you do very well in your subject. You go to a top university and you think you're better than everyone else. Uh, you're told from you're you're young that the Chinese are the master race and you think you're better than everyone else. Joseph was young, well built, and handsome. He was intelligent and capable and put in charge of everything. How much more difficult must it have been? For him to have resisted this temptation. He was just a little bit over 17, maybe 18 or 19. And I wonder if the men remember what it was like when they were that age. A few years ago, uh, I was teaching a small class of lower sixth boys uh, in my school in London. They would be 16 or 17, so we're not much different from Joseph's age. Uh, my head of department came in and popped his head around the door and said, uh, Boys, um, would you be interested? Could any of you really help me out and help out with a, uh, an open evening next Wednesday? You would stay and we could feed you uh, some, a little bit of supper. Um, and you would get to show parents around. And they were all, uh, like teenage boys too, I think we're busy. And I said, oh, boys, boys, uh, these, are, these are people who are going to come into the lower sixth next year. Um, you will get to show around all the new girls. 
And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, they, they're just like, yeah, I think we could do it. Yeah. I think we could do it. Yeah. Um, and I got uh, most of them volunteering, which is great. And I looked at my head and thought, like, do not understand teenage boys yet. I have to confess, at that age, my libido was sky high. Um, girls were on my mind a lot of the time. And I do have to thank God for keeping me out of temptation. Um, of course, I didn't see it like that at the time. But there are some benefits to being a very awkward, nerdy teenager who's locked up in a boys' private boarding school. Although not, not much has changed the, the, right there. So um, I think maybe God is still keeping me out of temptation. Um, so... Um, yeah, so, and, and there's that scene from Trainspotting. I don't know whether you've seen it. It's a, it's a really, really grim film to watch. But right at the beginning, there's a, uh, two couples who go clubbing. And in the club, the boys, uh, the, the guys go off together and start talking about the girls and their sex lives. And it pans to the girls, and they're talking about the boys and their sex life. As soon as the boys come back, the girls ask them, so what were you talking about? Football. <laughs> and, the, and immediately they ask, what were you talking about? They look at each other, shopping. <laughs> it's on our minds. It's on everybody's minds, or at least most people. Um, and can you imagine what it was like for Joseph? It would have been so easy for Joseph to have given in. He was a slave, and therefore bound to do his master's bidding. And probably his master's wife's bidding as well. So he could use that, uh, that excuse. I could do it just once and then she would leave me alone. That's a great excuse, isn't it? Have we used that excuse just once and then, then it'll be all better. He was far away from family and home and the God of his parents. What did those matter here? What did the teachings that his parents had given him matter here? This was a different culture. What had God ever done for him? You say, you see, resisting temptation once may be easy, although how many of us in Joseph's position would have given in in the first, uh, first chance? Read verse 10. She spoke to Joseph day after day, and you can be assured it wasn't just words. She may have just come out of the bath when Joseph was around, timed it perfectly. She may be adjusting her low-cut top when Joseph's in the room. She may just linger with her hands over him. How difficult must that have been for Joseph? As a young, single man in a different culture, far away from home and family, How many of us give in to it when we are tired, or lonely, or bored, or feeling down? Give in to those temptations just once. No. Right from the start, Joseph makes a clear and conscious decision to flee the temptation. And here uh, are the steps I think he takes here. Yeah, so hopefully you'll check these with me. Firstly, he vocalizes what the problem is. 
Again to verse 8, he says, Behold, because of my master, uh, me, my master has no concerns about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I, I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So the first step that Joseph uses to resist temptation is being clear and vocalizing what he think is, thinks is wrong. And the second is right there in, that, uh, in what he says there. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? It's the realization that sin is a wickedness against God. It's not against the guy who bought him and he owes nothing to. It's not against the faceless corporation that earns millions and wouldn't seem, uh, seem to care if you took the odd thing or can't even spare you a decent salary, wouldn't miss this little thing. It's not against the horrible person who is owed to anyway. It's not against the neglectful partner who doesn't pay you enough attention or uh, give you the attention you deserve or against the children who are making you, your life miserable or against the parents who don't do what all the other parents do, do what everyone else does, or the co-worker who just needs to be taught a lesson. The sin is not against them. It's a wickedness against God. You see, it's so easy to be like everyone else, to justify our sins. What will we say when we come before God? When I was a teenager, I was taught very clearly that sin is not what society says is evil or wrong. That can change. No, sin is a rebellion against God. When we sin, we are saying that we know better than God's rules. We're saying to God, stuff your rules, I know better. Thirdly, he places himself away from temptation as much as possible. In verse 10, he says, he would not listen to her. You see, how often does our gaze linger? How often do we entertain the thoughts of sinful desire? How often do we play with it in our minds? How easy would it be for a charming, young, charismatic guy like Joseph to flirt? or tease, or lead her along, perhaps even just playing with the idea of giving in to her. Instead, he does not listen to her. Now I've lost where I am. Um, so, um, and uh, instead, he doesn't listen, does not even listen to her. And you get, get the sense in the next little paragraph that he's often, he often uses other people, the other slaves, the other men in the house to evade her. Because in the very next paragraph, she makes sure that when he's a, he grabs, she grabs him when he's alone, when there are no men in the house. The Bible says that the wages of sin are death. And someone like a cliff, I like to imagine to give in to temptation is somewhat like falling off a cliff. Only the foolhardy 
if it's a, uh, will go and walk along the edge. Maybe go and peek over it. Just a little play around with, okay, there's the edge. Let's see whether, how close I can get. Sorry, I'm scared of heights, so I'm going to get, like, I'm nowhere near that edge. There's that old saying, isn't there? If you play with fire, you will get burnt. So too, so too with sin. Put yourself outside temptation's path. And finally, when she catches him in verse 12, what does he do? He flees. He runs away. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17 to 20 says, He who is joined with the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Flee sexual from sexual immorality. Don't even entertain the thought. Don't tease. Don't play with fire. Sometimes fighting the good fight means running away. Battling temptation means fleeing with it. It's not this noble idea of standing up, standing strong. It's running away and making sure that you are nowhere near it. So let me summarize. Firstly, he vocalized the problem. Be clear about what sin is, uh, perhaps even say it out loud. Secondly, realize that this sin is against God. It's not against man. It's a wickedness against God. Thirdly, place yourself in a place where you are not going to be tempted. Place yourself as far away from it as possible. And finally, when it comes close, and it will, and it will be persistent, and it will come, maybe not every day, but time after time, the same temptation will come back time and again. Run away. You see that we are assured of salvation, and that is the good news. We are assured of salvation. We have certainty in heaven. We are told that nothing can separate us from the love of God. God does allow us to be tempted, to test us and refine us. And through that refining process, we learn to resist temptation. And as we look to Jesus and resist that temptation, as we honor God... He builds us up for his greater glory and to serve him. So we look to Jesus as our example. He is testing and refining us through these temptations to become a greater servant of him. Let me pray. Father, help us to be very conscious about resisting temptation. When we fall, help us to get up and look to your cross and realize the great salvation that you've done, that you've already bought us, that your Holy Spirit indwells in us, and that these, even the smallest of sin is a wickedness against you. 
Help us to keep on fighting, keep on fleeing temptation, and keep us trying to serve you, whether we are young or old, whether we feel young or we feel old. Lord, help us to love those that we are around and to serve you for them. In Jesus' name, amen.